This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. What is the Holocaust narrative? Okay, so we're talking about uh, the end of World War II. Okay, we have a, a, a war that has been incredibly destructive of Europe. Uh, now the American troops and the British troops have broken into Germany. And as they're coming in, they suddenly come across these concentration camps. Now, one of them was uh, called Ordruf. No one knows about it anymore. It's not mentioned. Eisenhower marched in there, and they walked into the camp, and there are dead bodies all over the ground. Okay? Um, these were real bodies. They, they, this is not made up. Okay? So what's the Holocaust narrative? The Holocaust narrative takes that fact, and then it turns it into a story. And the story revolves around how did they die? How did those people die? Now, we know for after the fact that they died because of disease and starvation, namely typhus. We know that was the case because basically the Allies had destroyed the entire infrastructure of Germany at this point. You couldn't transport food. The water supply was destroyed. You couldn't get decent water. You couldn't get clean water and so on and so forth. And the people were dying like flies. If that story comes out, it looks as if the Americans are the villain. Okay, so we have to change the narrative. At this point, uh, Eisenhower calls in his chief of psychological warfare operations, General McClure. <clears throat> There's another concentration camp. They're heading down the road. This one's called Buchenwald. Buchenwald is outside of Weimar, famous German city cultural center. And before, so now we've got psychological warfare involved. Now we're going to create the narrative. So the psychological warfare people get in there first, okay, and they arrange a show. Eisenhower calls up the mayor of Weimar. I want you to, 2,000 Germans have to march out to Weimar. And the show is basically there's a table. And on that table, you have a lampshade, you got a pelvis, and you got two shrunken heads. And this is now the story that Billy Wilder is called in. He's the famous director. His real name is Shmuel Wilder. He's a Jew from Eastern Europe. He would become famous for um, basically uh, making Marilyn Monroe films, Some Like It Hot, the famous director in Hollywood. This is how he got to start. He's going to create the narrative, and the narrative is that the Germans were killing people in gas chambers. Now, there were no gas chambers in Ordruf. There were no gas chambers in Buchenwald. Everyone is distracted by the fact he holds up this pelvis. The pelvis was supposed to be the Nazis using it as an ashtray. Why would you use a pelvis in that? Full of holes. Doesn't make any sense. Then two shrunken heads. Are you saying the Germans shrank heads? No, they were taken from a museum uh, where the Amazon, people, they got them from tribes in the Amazon. This is a, so what you see here is what is the Holocaust narrative? It's basically facts on the ground, like those dead bodies at Ordruf. And then you take a category of the mind. That's a category of reality. Then you take a category of the mind and you impose it on those facts and say, this is how these people died. That's how the narrative came about. Everything about this conversation is considered taboo. Why is that? Because this is the fundamental myth of the American empire. It is not only the fundamental myth of the American empire, it is the state religion of the United States of America and the state religion of uh, virtually every country in Europe, but especially Germany. And so you're talking about real serious taboo here. Uh, you cannot talk about the facts. You cannot do history. Why can you not look into the history of what happened? Because the facts do not correspond to the narrative. And as soon as people find that out, then uh, they will no longer follow the narrative, and that means the end of the American empire. What Eisenhower said in Ordruf, he said, bring in the congressman, bring in the New York Times journalist, so that we can tell the American soldier what he's fighting for. Well, I guess the American soldier didn't know what he was fighting for. And that's why they had to call him in, and that's why you had to create this narrative to distract everyone fundamentally, basically, from the war crimes the Americans were committing at this period of time. 
the saturation bombing of Dresden, the firebombing of Dresden, saturation bombing of every city, firebombing of Hamburg. All of these things were war crimes. What Eisenhower was doing at that moment to capture German troops, the story of the Rheinwiesenlager, the Rhine Meadows camps. Uh, I lived in Germany on the Rhine. Uh, I was there in the 1970s as a teacher. That story didn't come out to 20 years after I left when a journal and uh, Canadian journalist by the name of Bach finally revealed the stories of the war crimes that Eisenhower committed against the German people. So it's there to distract everyone. Uh, it's, a, it's a story that you need to explain what America is all about. America, bring, we bring freedom to the rest of the world. And you should be grateful because we ha after we destroy your city, we'll hand you some chewing gum and cigarettes. I'm quite fascinated by the idea that this is an American narrative, uh, not a Zionist Israeli narrative. No. First of all, wait a minute. Hollywood is a Jewish operation. So this is how the Jews got involved in this narrative. So Hollywood had been, became, during World War II, certainly, it became the propaganda ministry of the United States of America. The Hollywood director was it. It wasn't solely the, the Americans. The other side of the story is that the British had their own Holocaust narrative, and they had their own Hollywood director who wasn't a Jew. He was a Catholic. His name, Alfred Hitchcock. Can you, Mike, can you shut that down? Thanks. Okay. It was Alfred Hitchcock. The camp was Bergen-Belsen, but exactly the same story. In other words, the British show up. There are dead bodies, or many more dead bodies at Bergen-Belsen than there were at uh, Ordruf. That was because uh, basically that uh, the Russian troops were heading in from the east. The people at uh, Auschwitz had the, had the chance to either surrender to the Russians or to move west with the Germans. They all chose to move west, including Elie Wiesel, by the way, the, one of the great uh, creators of the Holocaust narrative. They all went to Bergen-Belsen, which was already overcrowded, and people died like flies because of typhus and all those diseases. That movie was eventually made by Alfred Hitchcock. He put it together with all the footage. He showed up late there for a lot of reasons, put all this footage together. The British propaganda looked at it, and the propaganda ministry looked at it, and they said, no, it'll have the exact opposite effect. We're not going to release it. It wasn't released until the 1980s. Uh, by Channel 4 in England. So both of them were involved in their own separate uh, narratives. Once you establish the narrative, you convince the German people that they are guilty, you know, and then once you convince them they're guilty, then you can demand money from them, and that's where the reparations payments began, and that's what Norman Finkelstein was talking about. His parents were in a concentration camp. Uh, the German government, by the time he wrote that book, had given billions of dollars to Jews, well, what do you mean Jews? It, it, the lawyers got the money, and anybody who got it after the lawyers got it was uh, not uh, automatic. It wasn't automatic. Norman Finkelstein's parents never got a nickel in terms of reparations payments. Where is all that money going? It's going to Jewish lawyers, Jewish organizations. The Jewish organizations say uh, they collect the check, and they distribute it to whomever they see fit. It's up to them after that, that money gets handed out. There are a number of people. Uh, Stuart Eisenstadt is a very important figure. He was the head of the sanctions office at the United States Treasury Department. Uh, he is crucial, a crucial uh, Holocaust looter. Uh, he's already just brought down. Now they're trying to expand it. There are more, the t more time goes on, the more Holocaust survivors you have. It would seem to be the opposite, but that's because he keeps expanding what constitutes a Holocaust survivor. He is also responsible for the shakedown of Switzerland, uh, the so-called Nazi gold shakedown. Well, I was there in Switzerland when it, when it happened. I cover that in, in the book as well, in the Holocaust narrative. Mm. It's, uh, all things are possible with God. And the other thing I would say is that truth is great and it will prevail. And the mind, the human mind is never satisfied. It never reaches peace until it knows the truth. And so you can, this is exactly, you're right, exactly the story where you have the biggest propaganda machine in human history with the most sophisticated technology in human history proposing this story and yet you're not allowed to talk about it. 
well, wait a minute. This is the contradiction that we're all faced with. You're constantly being, like tomorrow is Holocaust Remembrance Day. So we have to celebrate it, but we can't talk about it. Other than any of the terms that they propose, that's not going to work over the long haul. And what you're seeing is that the whole thing is starting to crumble as we speak, largely uh, because the main beneficiary of the Holocaust narrative is Israel, and they are behaving abominably. They are engaged. You are the country. Your country is the one that has dragged them before the court in The Hague. The entire world has turned against Israel in spite of all of the money, in spite of all of the goodwill they had as victims after World War II, because it's not true. It's not true. This narrative is not based on reality. What you have to know is that uh, 70% of the lawyers at the Nuremberg trials were Jews. Uh, at this time, there was, uh, after World War II, there was a wave of revulsion that swept through the United States of America among the victors, largely because of the way Jews were behaving at this point. And I'm talking primarily about something called the Morgenthau Plan. Morgenthau was the, Henry Morgenthau was the Secretary of Treasury, a Jew who worked for uh, Franklin Roosevelt, had enormous uncanny power over the mind of Franklin Roosevelt. I don't know why, because he was a neighbor of his in, in New York. Don't know why. But uh, he wanted a hard, hard peace. That's the word that they were talking about it. And at a certain point, people like uh, General Patton, uh, Secretary of State Simpson, uh, they started to realize this is Semitic vengeance. We're Christians. We don't act this way. And furthermore, if you do act this way, you are going to drive the Germans into the hands of the Soviet Union. And there may, that may have been the plan, because the guy who wrote up the Morgenthau plan, his assistant was Harry Dexter White, who was a Jew, who was also a Soviet spy. So that may have been the plan, but there was a wave of revulsion that basically changed the tide. And what happened was that the, the Morgenthau plan got scrapped, and it was replaced by the Marshall Plan. The Jews were not as powerful then as they are now. There was a WASP ruling class in America, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ruling class, and they had this residual Christianity. And people like Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover, the former president, came forward and said, we can't treat these people this way. This is not Christian. And so the Marshall Plan came in, and at that point, Germany started to rebuild. At the same time, there was this bizarre growth of something called Christian Zionism. If you're talking about the Schofield Bible, yeah, that came out earlier in the 20th century. Uh, no, the Jews, for the most part, at this period of time, were not Zionists. If, if you go back to the Pale of the Settlement, which is where 90% of the world's Jews lived, it was used to be the, west, the eastern border of Poland, then it became the western border of Russia. During the 19th century, it made con the Jews in the shtetl made contact with the Enlightenment. And it came, created, there was Jewish nationalism, which was Zionism, and there was Jewish internationalism, which was communism. And both of these were battling for the minds of young Jews. And at the early period, communism won. Com these, the Jews became terrorists. Uh, they ended up creating organizations like Narodnaya a terrorist organization, which killed the Tsar. When they killed the Tsar, that set off pogroms, and that unleashed this huge migration of Jews from the Pale to the United States of America. This has also contributed to the formation of the Holocaust narrative, as I deal with in my book. So you've got a group of Jews here living in a situation of medieval hygiene. Okay, nothing had changed since the Middle Ages. Okay, you got to go west now to get to Hamburg because you got to get to Hamburg, get on the ship to America. As soon as they crossed the border into Germany, the train stopped. Everybody get off the train, take into a building, take off your clothes. They shave their heads. They put them in a shower. The Jew had never seen a shower before. It's, they don't know what's going to happen. Their clothes were being fumigated with Cyclone B as they were in the shower because the Jews were infested with lice. They were so infested, they didn't get sick from it anymore. 
They were immune to the diseases that lice carried. But as soon as the Jews showed up in Germany, the, the typhus epidemic, uh, typhoid epidemic would break out. So this is the story of basically, there's a story of a lady in 1910. The pub book was published in 1910 about her memoir of leaving the shtetl and coming to New York. And that's exactly what she described. And this is, the, the, it was eventually through the war propaganda, the two narratives got conflated. The showers, there was water in the showers. The disinfecting uh, agent was Cyclone B. That was a poison gas. They were two separate chambers, and then they put the clothes back on, they sent them on their way. Over the course of the war, those two narratives got conflated. So now there was gas coming out of the shower heads. That's impossible. That doesn't, that cannot work. You cannot do Cyclone B through a showerhead. It doesn't work. But that's the story that how it got created. So a single narrative evolved into multiple narratives. No, I'd say it's one narrative. I mean, there are multiple uh, examples of the narrative, but it's one narrative. Now, over this right. period, over this period of time, the narrative will undergo modifications, but it's always the same narrative. Bad Nazi kills innocent Jew. One of, one of them most significant contributions to this was A. Lee Wiesel's book, uh, Night. Now, first of all, A. Lee Wiesel did not write this book. It appeared in French as La Nuit, and it was written by Francois Mauriac, who had written, uh, who had won the Nobel Prize already. He had this weird relationship with Wiesel, probably homosexual, crypto-homosexual. Uh, A. Lee Wiesel had written a memoir in Yiddish called Und die Welt hat geschwiegen. He took that, it was 600 pages long, full of all sorts of nasty stuff like raping German girls. The Jews were raping German girls. Eliminated all that and created this elegant French piece of prose called Night. And that became one of the major narratives. Now, there's a problem here. There are no gas chambers in Night. So if you read the book, it's flaming pits. Okay, that makes sense because Holocaust means burnt whole. But it also means that Elie Wiesel is a Holocaust denier because he says there were no gas chambers at Auschwitz. Now, that became an embarrassment after a while, and then eventually the whole gas chamber thing became untenable because of trials in Canada, the Ansundel trials in Canada, which is the first time that people had to testify under oath. It never happened before, so that was mm -hmm. important. And so by 1992, a crucial year, this is when uh, Schindler's List comes out, and Schindler's List, did you see Schindler's List? Yeah. Did you see the naked ladies? This is a trope, classic trope. Take your clothes off, ladies. So there's a sexual component. They go into the shower. Guess what comes out of the shower head? Water. He couldn't, he, couldn't, he couldn't continue the narrative. So Steven Spielberg is technically a Holocaust denier because he said water came out of the shower heads. I think by that point, okay, the Zindel trials had taken place. No one under oath could uh, testify that there were gas chambers anymore. So Schindler is, uh, I mean, Spielberg is fi uh, stuck in it. He's in a bind. Do I continue the narrative, which means it will destroy the historical credibility of what I'm trying to say? Or do I go with historical credibility uh, and so on and so forth? I think he had to make a, a compromise, and so he chose to be more historically accurate by having water come out of the showers. Well, okay, so let's just establish then some some facts. There were camps across Poland and Germany and Austria, etc. Absolutely. And what was going on in those camps? Uh, what's it say over the entrance? Arbeit macht frei. Do you know what that means? Since you speak Dutch, do you speak Dutch? Do you speak German? It speaks. It means work will set you free. They were work camps, so they were there to work. First of all, there's something I also have to say here. The fundamental paradigmatic camp at the beginning, right after World War II, was Dachau. It was not Auschwitz. Dachau was the first camp to be created. It was created in 1933. It's a suburb of Munich. <clears throat> it was for Catholics. I mean, there were a lot of different people. The main group there were Catholic priests. And there was a Catholic narrative after the war. Uh, basically, a priest writing memoirs about what it was like in Dachau. And it all came down to the same thing. There is a purpose to suffering. 
We were, the German nation had committed the sin of atheism. They had turned away from God. Germany is being punished for the sin of atheism. And we, as these Catholic priests, are called to expiate that sin. That's the narrative as of 1955 with books like Christus in Dachau by Johannes Lenz, the Austrian priest. Three years later, Eli Wiesel's book come out and the Jews hijack the narrative. At this point, what is the moral of Knight? God died at Auschwitz. So Knight, now the Jewish narrative, now the paradigmatic camp is Auschwitz. It's not Dachau. Now the only people who suffered are Jews. And now the moral is completely flipped. Now this is propaganda for atheism. That's what happened over the course of the, the development of this narrative. Was Adolf Hitler a Catholic? Yes. Baptized Catholic. Okay, it comes down to the uh, uh, conference at Wannsee. Von, Wannsee is a lake uh, near Berlin uh, where they uh, were trying to deal with the uh, developments in the war. Is it not? 42 is an absolutely crucial moment in the war because the Third Reich reached its greatest extent and then it starts to collapse inward. When uh, Lenz talked about his, the priest being a priest in Dachau, the turning point was August of 1942. He said, we all would have died of starvation and disease if the word hadn't come down from Himmler to say, we need these people to work. We need effective workers. You can't starve them to death and they can't work. And so at that point, uh, the narrative changed. So there's this conference in Wannsee. We've got now a different situation. We've got this huge number of people. And the question comes down to how are we going to deal with it? There is no evidence whatsoever that extermination, that an order for extermination came down from Berlin. They were trying to deal with this new situation. I've already explained to you how they had to make a course adjustment at Dachau because of the huge numbers. This only increased in 43 because you had the the, uh, the Warsaw Uprising, which meant there are huge numbers of Poles now had to be put in concentration camps. That's when Auschwitz came into being uh, to deal with, with the Poles. There is no, this is what came out uh, in the trials. There's no, no one could produce documentary evidence that the so-called final solution or Entlösung was extermination. No evidence. I'm saying guilt is the main force driving the Holocaust narrative. That guilt increased exponentially after the war in a story that most people don't even know about, which is basically the expulsion of all of the ethnic Germans from the eastern providence of the, of the Reich. I'm talking about East Prussia, uh, Pomerania, uh, the, the Sudetenland, and uh, Silesia. The Germans, uh, basically, Roosevelt, who's dying, Churchill and Stalin get together in Potsdam, and uh, how uh, Stalin is the victor of this war. There's no question. England is on the ropes financially. They are, they're beholden to the Jews on Wall Street to lend them money. Roosevelt is dying. He can't, can't think about that. Think straight. Everyone's trying to placate Stalin. Stalin wants Eastern Poland. Okay? Well, what Stalin wants, he gets because you don't give it to him. He's going to march in and take it. He's got a six million man army ready to take it anyway. So they give And in order to compensate the Poles, they gave them Eastern Germany and all of those provinces. And so uh, uh, that what, what happened? All of those people were ethnically cleansed. Like from today, like, okay, you have 15 minutes to get out and take with you. And so a huge number of Germans set off in the middle of winter carrying whatever they can. They're, they're old, old people and they're women and children because all the men are in the army and they starve to death and freeze to death along that march back into, into Germany. The, the, the Germans call it the Heimatvertriebene, the ex, expellees from these areas. No one's ever talked about it. That was the outcome. And that added to the burden of guilt, which is what fuels the Holocaust narrative. The guilt is the psychological engine that drives the Holocaust narrative. Bolshevism was a Jewish revolutionary movement. 
Okay, does that mean every Bolshevik was a Jew? No. It means without the Jews, that wouldn't have happened. And that's precisely what happened. And this is the other thing that you don't hear about, is swarms of Jews who ran away. They all come back now. They all got guilt because they ran away and other people died while they were safe in Hollywood or wherever they were. And now they come back and they're determined to have vengeance. And so the story is those concentration camps filled right up again. And it was the exact opposite it was was before. So you have a guy like uh, Solomon Morel, the Jewish commandant of Auschwitz. Did you know that? The Jewish commandant of Auschwitz and all the prisoners are German now. And this is where all of the brutality really took place. You read It's in the book. You can read it in the book. I hope you do read the book because I'm just giving you a summary here. Uh, now, the, the tragedy here is that there are people who say that Solomon Morell was a Pole. No, he lived in Poland, but he was a Jew. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to exonerate the Poles. They were involved in lots of atrocities against the Germans. But part of the tragedy here is it's these Jewish Bolsheviks who come in and they take on the, nation, the nationality of where they happen to live gets discredited for the fact of what they were doing. So was is part of this narrative covering up war crimes of people like Eisenhower and the Soviets? Yes, absolutely. First of all, the Soviets uh, raped and pillaged their way through all of Eastern Europe. Uh, so I had to add this. I just, when I did this book, I expected pushback from the Jews. Okay, I got no, nothing. This is dynamic silence. This is the way the Jews deal with something they can't. They can't answer. It's irrefutable what I've what I've talked about here. Okay, I got pushed back from the Poles, and I got pushed back from the Nazis. Okay, the Poles are. I just dealt with the problem with the Poles. There, um, to say that every Pole was innocent, that's wrong. Okay, but there was this problem with the Soviet army. These Jews who happened to claim to claim to be Poles and their allegiances to Jewish Bolshevism. Okay, that's part of the problem. The other part is the Nazis now are telling me. This is this weird thing I realized. The, the Jews and the Nazis are of one mind in excluding Catholic participation from the Holocaust. You can't do that. Dachau was created for Catholics. There were other people there, but the main enemy of the Third Reich in 1933 in Germany was the Catholic Church. They wouldn't go along. The, the Nazis wanted total control of education, and they knew that they had they couldn't do this as long as the Catholics had their own school system and churches and stuff like that. Do you, think, do you you baptize? If you get baptized, you are a Catholic. Baptism is necessary but not sufficient for salvation. Okay, it's the necessary condition, but you have to act in a certain way. And what happened to Germany, obviously it was half Catholic, half Protestant, roughly. What happened during this period of time, the time when Hitler is growing up, is a massive defection from the Christian faith on the part of people who, uh, for various reasons. I mean, Nietzsche, this is when Nietzsche is, is um, writing books. He becomes incredibly important as a thinker in Germany at this point, And Germany abandons uh, the, the Catholic faith. This is what, you, so uh, yeah, Goebbels was a Catholic too, in terms of baptism. But when you get to this new movement, this is Germany. This is the religion of race. And I, in the book now, the new epilogue I wrote, all of these Germans are now talking about the religion of race. It's your DNA that saves you. Well, where does that remind you of? What other group believes that they're saved by their DNA? The Jews. Read the Gospel of St. John. Even back then, the Jews are telling Jesus Christ, we are, we are the seed of Abraham. In other words, we have real special DNA. We don't need you. Well, that's exactly the Jew, The Nazis are a kind of mirror image of the Jews. This is the time of biological determinism. We're talking about Darwin and that era in Europe. And that was this huge apostasy from the faith and it swept people like Hitler away. Don't abandon the Catholic faith. Uh, if you do, you will end up in trouble. This is the soul of European culture. If you come up with some type of new mechanistic explanation of the universe, millions of people will die. It's that simple. 
So what what does it mean? Uh, what what does it mean uh, for us? Uh, for me, uh, I, I I'm I'm a victim of identity theft. I mean, I as a Catholic, uh, I'm half German. The German people have held, had their identity stolen, and I talk in great detail about how that happened and how the Holocaust played a crucial role in the identity theft of the German people. This is a group of people, you may have heard this, who can't even ask who blew up the pipeline, the Nord Stream pipeline. They are so crippled intellectually by this guilt that was imposed on them by the Jews through the Holocaust, they can't even ask who blew up their pipeline. They're, go they're going broke now because they don't have enough energy to run their industry. Exactly what the Allies did in World War II, the Jews are now doing to the Palestinians in Gaza. Exactly the same thing. It's saturation bombing and it's ethnic cleansing. That was, that was the whole saturation bombing during the war, ethnic cleansing after the war. This is the plan. And so when Benjamin Netanyahu suddenly wakes up and everybody is against him, there was a vote in the United Nations. Uh, I, I forget the exact number. 147 to 4 uh, people want to call for a ceasefire. ceasefire. Uh, who, who's, who's, who doesn't want a ceasefire? The United States, Israel... Micronesia, and Nauru. Can you locate Nauru on the map? Nauru is a large piece of bird shit in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's the original shithole country because the, bird, the birds, the migratory birds would have to stop there to rest and they would all shit in the island. And it's called Gueno, and it's a very good fertilizer. So they eventually dug it all out, and so the holes are there, and the shit's gone. So it's the original shithole country. These are the only people who are uh, supporting this genocide in Gaza now. This shows you how serious it is. So what does he do? He has to invoke the Holocaust as justification for what he's doing. It's justification for genocide now. Where did this term Holocaust with a capital H come from? It's a Greek word that means burnt whole. So it, I think it was originally applied to Dresden because people were burnt whole. That was the firebombing of Dresden. So I think this is where it came into. And then Eli Wiesel obviously liked the term because he said that the Jews were thrown into flaming pits. This is crazy. That's, no one ever, there were no, no evidence whatsoever for flaming pits at Auschwitz. We know this because there were, the Americans were flying reconnaissance flights over that during this time. No evidence whatsoever for flaming pits. Okay, none whatsoever. But it is a good image because it goes back to biblical times, which is basically the Jewish religion, the religion of the Mosaic Covenant, meant that you had to burn animals whole. So that was the original meaning of Holocaust. It was a sacrifice. And so the Jews now come in and say, well, we were a sacrifice to God that was offered up on the altar of the Third Reich. And so therefore we have a kind of sacred character. Yeah. And I mean, this narrative only really started taking hold, what, like 20 years after World War II? I would say that the turning point came in the 1970s. Obviously, I already mentioned Ailey Wiesel. That was 1958. The crucial turning point was a mini-series. Don't, I don't know where you remember mini-series. It was like television programs that lasted more than one night, okay? And the mini-series was, first of all, the big mini-series of the 70s was called Roots, which is about uh, African slaves coming over to America, so on and so forth. Well, the Jews decided they want to have their own mini-series. One year later, they did a mini-series, and it's called The Holocaust, I think that's where the word finally gained uh, traction. It's it's one of those words that only gets applied now to World War II. It, I mean, what about Rwanda? What about uh, what right. happened in in the in, well, in Russia? What better better example? What about the Holodomor? What about happened in the Ukraine? That that was recently weaponized in the war in the Ukraine. How'd they do that? Well, they said it was the Russians who starved the Ukrainians to death. No, no. We're back to that same old shell game. It was the Jews who starved 
the Ukrainians to death. It was Lazar Kaganovich and the Jewish Bolsheviks. They were the ones who perpetrated. So this is all down because now we have to have a new configuration where the Jews and the Nazis are running the Ukraine. And, and this is embarrassing. As soon as someone points it out, the ADL says, well, these are really good Nazis. This is the Stefan Bandera crowd, the Azov Brigade. They're Nazis. But they're good Nazis now because they're fighting for the or for the Americans for NATO against the Russians. So you're saying that the Americans knew this all along, which is also probably why Operation Paperclip happened when they hired what like one and a half thousand Nazis into their into their science program. What ha there was a, a major looting operation after the war. The Soviets dismantled every single factory where they could find it, and the United States basically recruited. Um, German scientists like Werner von Braun. They brought them over here and they started working because they knew how to build missiles. We didn't know anything about how to do the V-2 missile. Germany was always the most advanced technological country in the world. And so we basically stole their patents, stole their people, and brought them over here to, to work for us in the, in the Cold War. The Soviets dismantled every single factory and took it off to the Soviet Union. But the looting also meant the theft of patents and, most importantly, the theft of labor. Labor is the source of all value. The, Germany was a formidable power because Germans knew how to work. Okay, And the United States brought people like Werner von Braun over here to basically create our space program because they knew how to build the V-2 rockets. We didn't know how to do that. We uh, were never as advanced in terms of mobilizing labor as the Germans well. The Germans, uh, so let me go back to the, the, what I told you. The Morgenthau plan is Jewish vengeance. Get rid of it. The WASP shove the Jews aside, say we're not gonna, yeah, yeah, we're the boss, and they create the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan uh, began with the reform of the currency in Germany. Before the Marshall Plan, cigarettes were the currency. You had a pack of Lucky Strikes, we'd buy you something. Okay, now they have a currency that is worth something. The same moment of the currency reform, 50 tons of pornography are brought into the country from Austria. This is the beginning of social engineering. And this is how you take control of the German mind. You get them involved in illicit sexual activity, which creates guilt. And then you say, oh, the real reason you feel guilty is because your grandfather was driving a train in Poland. And you have inherited that guilt and you will be guilty forever. The Germans succumb to sexual liberation. When you succumb to sexual liberation, you feel good, guilt. And the social engineering was basically the managing of that guilt so that the Jews could extort money from the Germans forever, which is the situation now. So this is William Styron. William Styron is known as a Southern writer. That was a genre in American fiction. The most famous example would be William Faulkner. Maybe you've heard of William Faulkner. Anyway, he suddenly realizes, uh, he, he has a big bestseller called The Confessions of Nat Turner, which is about a slave rebellion in the United States. Uh, at this point, the Black Jewish Alliance is falling apart. That was the civil rights movement is falling apart. And he's demonized for writing a book about black people. And so at this point, it's in the book itself. If you read Sophie's Choice, the Styron character meets with a Jew, and the Jew says to him basically, uh, look, uh, Southern fiction is a busted flush. Get with the new program. You've got to write a story about Jews. And so what Styron did was wrote Sophie's Choice. And it was a big success, uh, but it's a crappy book. I mean, it's a terrible book. Styron is not a scholar. Uh, he grew up in Virginia, close to where that uh, slave rebellion took place. So they were his roots. He understood that kind of from the ground up. He's now thrown into a situation where he's trying to talk about Poland. He had no idea what happened in Poland. You know, uh, Jesse Kaczynski wrote The Painted Bird. He was a Polish Jew, so he was there. That was the first one of the big right before that. Kaczynski was a friend of Styron's. Styron looks at Kaczynski, <laughs> realizes this guy is famous. He can't write. Uh, he didn't even write The Painted Bird. Someone else, he had a ghostwriter do it. So this is where the money is. And so Styron writes Sophie's Choice, and it's a crappy book. He knows it's a crappy book. It's, he's dependent on the Holocaust narrative to write a book. 
can you write a true fiction piece of fiction based on distortions, historical distortions? He couldn't go against the Holocaust narrative. He couldn't tie it together in a coherent narrative. And so it comes out, they made a movie out of it, blah, blah, blah. That's great. But he's depressed. And he spent the rest of his life, never wrote another book, spent the rest of his life trying not to commit suicide. So what role then did Anne Frank play? It was one of the early narratives. Okay. It's, first of all, whenever you're talking about a child author, you're probably not talking about the real author. We, uh, her father, there's all kinds of changes in the uh, document and so on and so forth. We go into that uh, in detail in the, in the book. It's one of those narratives that will come to an end at some point. Yeah, yeah you and I are putting an end to it right now. You and I, they will look back and they'll say, this is the book. Look, what did I do? I just said it's a narrative. Mm. Can anyone dispute that it's not a narrative? This, this is where I, I have a PhD in American literature. So for once, I'm qualified to talk about what I'm talking about, you know, and unlike all these other books where I have to start it from the ground up. Uh, it's, it's a creation. This book, this book, this movie, this movie, it's just literary criticism. What are you going to say? But how do you, how do you deal with the pushback from from those people who say yes, but my grandparents were there; they remember it. Yeah, right, right. Every single member of the Biden administration, if you bring them in to the Senate the way Josh Hawley did with Merrick Garland, and you say, "Look, you're not doing your job. You got your money in hand in the till. You got your pants down." Do you know what that Jew will say? I have relatives who died in the Holocaust. So what? Does that mean what you're saying is true? No. And what, so let me go back to Steven Spielberg. Okay, when Steven Spielberg shows up in Poland to do uh, Schindler's List, you've got a line of people going all the way around the block of Jews who want to come up and give testimony. Obviously, he can't get the movie done if you got to talk to all of these Jews. So what he does, he creates the Shoah Foundation. The Shoah Foundation comes into business one year after Schindler's List comes out. And this is a, where you, anybody can go up there and you will give your testimony. And so what happened here is the whole idea of the narrative shifted again. You used to have people like Raoul Hilberg who was a historian, who couldn't testify under oath at the Zundel trials that any of this happened, okay? He was discredited as a historian, and now we don't deal with historians anymore. Anybody. This is the age of, of psychobabble. This is the age of the, the therapy, okay, the 12-step program. And so anybody can come in and say something, and that's what happened. So you had basically uh, one crazy narrative after another created by the Spielberg Foundation. So, Misha and the Wolves. Do you remember the story of Misha and the Wolves? So Misha, Misha, it's it's this incredible story. Misha is a girl, uh, and her parents are taken to Auschwitz, and so she travels all the way across Europe in a pack of wolves to liberate her parents from Auschwitz. Now that's an incredible story. Okay, Misha Difoneska. Well, it turns out, first of all, I know you're shocked to hear this, but this nine-year-old girl did not travel across Europe in a pack of wolves. There is no woman called Misha Difoneska. Her name is Van Vale. She's a Catholic girl from Belgium, and she made it all up because of problems with her father being a collaborator. Okay? That's just one example. Benjamin Vilkomirsky, another post-Schindler phenomenon. He wrote a book called Fragments of a Jewish boy from Latvia who was taken to the children's uh, concentration camp. This is an incredible story. He did the story and there were people saying, I was there with him, some lady said. Well, this is corrupt. Well, no, it turns out, first of all, his name isn't uh, Benjamin Vilkomirsky. He's not a Jew. He's not from Latvia. He's an orphan from Switzerland whose name is Dosicker. Now, Debbie Lipstadt, the lady who created Holocaust denial as a crime, she used to promote Vilkomirsky's book. Well, wait a minute, Debbie. Is it Holocaust denial to say that 
Benjamin Wilkomirski was a Swiss guy by the name of Dosicker? Well, yeah, it was until 60 Minutes exposed him. So you could technically go to jail for saying that there was no such thing as Benjamin Wilkomirski until 60 Minutes does it. And then obviously it goes down the memory hole. This is why this is crazy. Why are we making this a crime? Was that a crime? Is there somebody in jail because he said Benjamin Wilkomirski never existed? Is that Holocaust denial? The there's an interesting development here called uh, artificial intelligence. So someone did this. They basically typed into chat GPT how many Jews died during World War II. Answer, six million. Question, uh, how did they die? Two, uh, gas chambers. Question, what did they do with the bodies? They were cremated. Question, how long does it take to cremate a body? Answer, eight hours, something like that. Question, how long will it take to cremate six million bodies? Answer, 87 years. That's ChatGPT. That's the computer. Is that computer anti-Semitic? Are we going to put that computer on trial for Holocaust denial? This is the bind that the Jews find themselves in as they try to continue their narrative. Where did this number, six million, come from? Uh, some people say it has... Um, mystical significance. It was already, in during the time of the pogroms, which is the 1890s in Russia, the, term, the, the newspapers in New York were saying that six million Jews had been murdered in the pogroms in Russia. That's in the 1890s. So it has some type of Kabbalistic uh, numerical significance. And it's a number that's just stuck with, with the narrative. Well, yeah, it became normative. I think it's still in force in in uh, countries. If you say only f five million died, uh, you'll go to jail. This came to a head. Uh, I, I discussed this in the book as well. When Bishop Williamson, the Lefevreite bishop, was lured into a trap in Germany, uh, he told me the story personally. He was there doing the Swedish TV was interviewing him, and uh, at a certain point, it looked as if the interview was over. They're pack they're packing up the equipment. And the guy says to him, oh, by the way, how many people died in the Holocaust? And Bishop Williams said, I think it was around 300,000. Now, that was a trap. They did that to catch him because they wanted, it was a, you can read the book, a long, complicated plot against the Catholic Church, primarily an attack on Bishop, on uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who was Pope Benedict XVI at the time. Anyway, uh, he broke the law. And then there was this big rigmarole, are we going to put the bishop on trial and so on and so forth? As far as I know, they just said, okay, you can pay a fine. And I think he refused to pay the fine and nothing ever happened to it. So I'm going to, actually, I'm going to be meeting with Bishop Williamson in a, a week or so. I, can, I think he's finally cleared of that charge. But that's an example of uh, how it was used. The modern state of Israel relies heavily on the Holocaust narrative, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the main justification for his existence. Now, they can claim that they were, you know, they are the children of Moses and their ancestors walked across the Red Sea and that, that's, nobody believes that. There's no, there's no genetic connection between the Ashkenazi and those, and there's uh, those Jews at the time of Christ and secondly, there were a time of Moses. And secondly, there's more importantly, no theological connection either. So doesn't hold. So you need the Holocaust as justification. People are going to say, ah, oh, but you just hate Jews. Is that what this is about? I love Jews. Okay. Why do I love Jews? Because Jews are my enemy. And Jesus Christ said we should love our enemies. So put that, try that one on. Okay. Now I am, there are other reasons. I know I have Jews who have converted to Catholicism because of listening to me. I have Jews who have not, in spite of listening to me, uh, I have Jews who support me, and there is this consensus uh, that was articulated by um, Civiltà Cattolica, 1890s, when they wrote a, a series, the official journal of the Catholic Church, writing a series on um, the Jewish question, when the Church could address the Jewish question. And they said, basically, Ratzinger's uncle wrote a book. It's around the same time. And they're saying, basically, if these, if the nations in Europe do not return 
to the Christian faith, okay, they will be ruled by Jews. That's, that was basically talking about France. It was 100 years after the French Revolution. What is the net result of the French Revolution? We're ruled by Jews. That's what the French are saying. That's what the church is saying. Now, if the word gets out that you're ruled by Jews and the people start to be able to focus their resentment on this group of people, there's going to be a violent reaction. And I'm trying to prevent that violent reaction. Just as the same way that uh, Georg Ratzinger tried to prevent it, the same way that uh, Chivota Katolika tried to prevent it, I'm trying to say I'm the best friend the Jews have right now because I'm talking honestly. I'm risking my own life to talk to Jews. You know, there's nothing worse, greater curse or threat to call you an anti-Semite. Look at the ADL. I'm up the top of their list. I am doing this. Do you think I'm, I'm getting rich and famous? I have gotten nothing. Even last week, I was number one uh, after talking to um, Jason Whitlock. Every news media outlet covering it says, Jones, anti-Semite, blah, blah, blah. Okay, okay, I'm trying to help you. This is what I'm trying to say to the Jews. You're my enemy. I'm supposed to love my enemy because I'm a Christian, and I'm trying to help you because I'm bringing the truth. If, it, if what I said is false, point out the error. If what I said is true, why do you strike me? That's my question to the ADL. Uh, you remember what I said before? I think before it went on the air. Remember the Zulus? Okay. The story is the English have guns and the Zulus have spears. And they charge the English and they all get... No, it wasn't that way. One Zulu got through, and then another Zulu got through, and suddenly it's close combat, and the Zulus are winning because they have spears, and the guns don't work anymore. That's the, my new image. That's my new image. Thank you, South Africa, for giving me this image. Okay? Who's going to be the first Zulu through the British line? Who's going to be the first Zulu? Is it me? Is it you? But one Zulu is going to get through. And then they're all going to get through, and then the narrow is going to collapse. Dr. Jones, how can I follow your work? You can go to culturewars.com or fidelitypress.org. All of my books are available at fidelitypress.org. Do not go to Amazon. I've been banned from Amazon. Go to fidelitypress.org or culturewars.com. Dr. E. Michael Jones, thank you for joining me in the trenches. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.